Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in fabulous Las Vegas, where I have to be honest, things are not going well. I have played in nine of these Venetian tournaments, and I have made exactly one dinner break. I'm not going to share my bad beat stories, but I will tell you that there have been a number of times, a number of times, when I got it in quite good and uh, still managed to hit the showers very soon thereafter, uh, as is the case in every poker player's life. So if you're a tournament grinder like I've been for a long time, this story is probably not making you shed a tear for me because it's all too familiar to you as well. But I always like to share my successes with you guys. And this week, I need to share that I have not had any success of late. That said, it is nice to be back on the felt playing live poker. Although it's strange now that they made us put our masks back on. I was in Vegas on the day when they announced that the masks need to go back on. I think that was actually the same day as I recorded the last podcast. So it was fun playing live poker without a mask for a week. And it's less fun now playing poker with a mask. And the casinos are being really strict. Like if your mask is on, but it's not covering your nose, or you take a few seconds too long drinking your water, they're right on you. Like saying you have to cover your face. So I guess it's all in the name of public health or something, but that's weird. Anyway, uh, that's what's going on. I just have a few more days here, and then I will have to tuck my tail between my legs and make my sad departure, hoping that, as my one superstitious friend told me, I'm getting all my bad luck out of the way now so that I will have good luck in October. I wish thoughts like that would help me sleep better at night, but the fact is I don't believe in luck. All right, I wanted to share a uh, a review that we got recently. This one comes from a reviewer called DCD1977. Uh, the headline for his review, it's a five-star review. It says, fantastic for poker tournament strategy. Listening to this podcast has really helped my poker tournament play. Every time I'm in a hand, I think to myself, what would Clayton do? <laughs> so naturally, I've been bubbling a lot. But absolutely awesome content. Keep up the good work, Clayton and crew. And that is the kind of deprecating humor that I really need right now as I'm just walking to Venetian every day and then losing my shirt. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm not going to be the only one talking today. You'll be glad to know. We have a first-time guest, but a longtime member of tournament poker edge uh he is a successful online player he tells me that he's had the best summer of his entire career and one of the highlights included being at the final table of the crazy eights online wsop bracelet event that was won by our friend carlos welch so please welcome you can find him on twitter at joe beagles first time guest joe beagles joe can i t can i just say I don't think that is your real name. Is it okay if I start off that way? 
Hi, Clayton. Uh, yes, it is okay. My name is actually Joey, um, but I go by Joe Beagles pretty much uh, everywhere online. So, okay. Um, yeah. And yeah. you're pretty yeah, active on Twitter. Me. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. Uh, you're pretty active on Twitter. Um, you know, what do you feel about Twitter and poker Twitter and being a part of the of of poker Twitter as a, as a whole? I am active on Twitter. My handle, uh, gonna insert it here for a quick little, uh, quick little punchline here is at Joe underscore Beagles. But, um, yeah, I am active on Twitter and I do love poker Twitter. I'm more of the, uh, the replier, shall you say. I like to, to look through the threads and, and reply to people. Uh, I will tweet out my own stuff. Um, usually updates on tournaments that I'm playing or, uh, different, you know, random thoughts that I have, but, uh, I've made a big uh, a big effort to be very neutral on Twitter, so I try not to get involved with any of the drama, uh, and I enjoy just watching it all unfold. So yeah, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude that comes with just enjoying other people's drama on Twitter for sure. So yeah, it's Joe underscore Beagles. Now, Joe, when did you first join TPE, and what has your experience with us been like? My my TPE experience is is a little unique, I think. Um, so I joined TPE back in 2016. Um, at the time, I was living in Argentina, and um, I was really looking for a way to improve that was affordable. So I've played poker for um, over 15 years, but I played recreationally for a very long time uh, with my friends for a long time. I would occasionally go to the casino and, and I'd say in the long run, maybe break even by the time I was, you know, five or six years in. This is this is way pre Black Friday. But um, I ended up not really taking it very seriously until I moved to Argentina and that was around mid 2016. Uh, and when I moved there, I was looking for uh, a training site uh, that was affordable for me. Um, at the time, I was very active uh, on Twitch in terms of watching people, watching Twitch streamers. Um, one of the first streamers I ever watched was Dylan Horton. Shout out to Dylan, the poker devil, uh, who now uh, I believe he doesn't stream that much anymore. But I used to watch a lot of Twitch streams, and I believe I first heard of TPE from... Um, a Twitch stream. It might have been Killing Birds. I don't know if he was streaming at that point. Um, but yeah, so I first heard of Tournament Poker Edge from a, a Twitch stream and I signed up and from that point on I just kind of took off. It was where I was introduced to a, a bunch of people. Um, Andrew Brokus, obviously, um, Mark Aliotto, um, you know, Big Dog Pocket Fives, Colin Moss, and all of them. I started watching all the videos. I was a huge fan. I thought to myself, hey, you know, for 25 bucks a month, I'm not paying per video. I might as well watch as many videos as I can. Um, and so I started doing that and listening to the, uh, the Thinking Poker podcast. I started listening to the old TPE podcast uh, and really working on my game at that point in my life. Um, that year, I actually won a seat on Poker Stars to the Latin American Poker Tour in Uruguay. Uh, and so that was kind of a really big deal for me because it would be the first uh, big live tournament that I played, and I never really had much success in online poker before that point. Um, so that was that was really, really cool for me. So what was the buy-in for that EPT event? So that EP, it was a Latin American poker tour event. So oh. it was an LAPT event. It was in Uruguay in Punta del Este. 
uh, at the uh, Andre Conrad Hotel and Casino, which is a, a very, very nice um, casino down there on the coast in Uruguay. And uh, at the time, I mean, I was living in Argentina because um, the girl I was dating, who is not my wife, uh, she was living in Argentina. And as it turns out, her family had an apartment down the street from this casino, and I happened to win an entry into this uh, this main event at the LAPT. It was a $1,600 tournament. That's so cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was from a, uh, a $10 hyper turbo <laughs> late night saddie on Poker Stars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are the stories. I mean, I have a few like that. Back in the day, I used to play on cake poker, and I won my seat the first time I ever went to the Aussie Millions. I won this like $17,000 package for like 30 bucks. You know, we were all trying to be money maker in our own special way. But yeah, I mean, those were good times. You don't really get that anymore, at least here in the States. You live in in the U.S. now? I do, yeah. I live in in California, in Southern California. Um, You know, and you talk about cake poker a lot on the podcast. I did play on cake poker for quite some time. Um, and maybe the only one out there uh, listening right now who did, but I remember that site very, very well. Um, yeah, well, you've and, been playing, uh, but, but you've been playing for 15 years, which is uh, 105 in dog years. So you've been around a <laughs> in while. <poker> years. <laughs> no, dog years because of the beagle thing. Yeah. So what is that? Because you, <laughs> you and Derek both have this thing about beagles. So what's up with the beagle? Like, do you own beagles? Do you care about beagles, or do you just choose the word? So for me personally, it's it stems from a huge love and, and admiration towards them, and it's one that I've had since I was a child. Um, I did have a beagle when I was younger. Um, spoiler alert, I don't have a beagle now. Uh, I've been called a fraud, um, but that's okay. Uh, I do love beagles very, very, very much, uh, and they've been a huge passion of mine since I was uh, – a teenager so um that's why i uh, have uh, kind of crafted my screen names off of them i know derek has his own reasons for his you know 24-hour beagle stream and that sort of thing and of course i always try and show up and support him uh, yeah but, well i never had a dog i've never owned a dog i have a cat now but um i understand that people really uh like the love between uh, a pet and a human is is very special and like if you had a, a beagle when you were a kid i think you can still use the name now because you qualify you know what i mean like you're you're in i agree yeah retroactively <laughs> agree. yeah for life for life i'm allowed to yeah yeah but it seems like that particular breed of dog seems to attract um people that become really passionate about that exact breed like i feel like there are dog lovers and there are beagle lovers, and it's a separate category almost. That's a really good point, and I think that's really accurate. I don't know why that is, but everyone I've met who has a fondness for beagles, that fondness is quite strong. Yeah, and it's for that particular breed of dog. And, and not to say you wouldn't like some other kind of dog, but I think that beagles have a way of getting, uh, I don't know, somehow into our hearts or something. You know, the only beagle I'm really familiar with is Snoopy, and he's pretty awesome. Snoopy is awesome. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about beagles, I think, is that they're just, they've been around forever. They're the hunting dog. They're kind of like the, you know, you think of the rural old school companion. So I think that's what drives a lot of people's interest in them. Yeah, kind of like a throwback dog. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Well, before this becomes a um, dog lovers podcast, let's get into poker 
a little bit. So you were grinding these $10 late night satellites to try to win <laughs> spots on the Poker Stars LAPT. And, uh, you know, so what happens from there? Um, yeah, so from there, uh, I, I moved back to the States in 2017. And I started playing uh, live a lot. And I had a, a pretty decent summer in 2017 at the time it was my best summer which is is no longer true but i I did have a a good summer in 2017 i won a side event at the legends of poker wpt stop in los angeles the bicycle casino i've played that event myself good time correct yeah yep very good times um and uh so i had i had a pretty big summer for me in 2017 and then uh lots of other kind of life events took me away from the felt, both the real felt and the virtual felt for about a year or two, including um, getting my bachelor's degree uh, and other kind of uh, big events that caused me to have to take some time off and away from the tables. Now, hold on, Joey, because I've heard of people quitting college to pursue poker, but never somebody quitting poker to pursue college. What's up with that? That's correct. You heard me right. I did stop playing a lot to continue to focus on my bachelor's degree, and I am actually currently getting a master's degree right now, as well as playing full time. Um, but yeah, it's it's a thing. Not many people do it. People <laughs> go the other direction, but it's a thing. So what are you studying now? Now I'm getting my master's degree in finance. Uh, I figured it was about as close to poker as I could get. Yeah, sure. It's all about uh, risk management and things of that nature. There are so many parallels. I find a lot of financial people do pretty well in poker because they're familiar with some of the concepts that are foreign to people from other backgrounds. So, yeah, yeah they, they exactly. do have a lot a of lot, overlap. Yeah. A lot of the concepts are, are almost exactly the same. I mean, you know, in day one, they're trying to teach me expected value and I'm, you know, like, okay, yeah, <laughs> let's move on. Yeah, I could you have know? tested out of this part. Yeah. <laughs> but um but yeah so anyway I came back to uh to poker around mid 2019 or so I'd say and I played sporadically uh in the time from 2017 to 2019 but um I really came back around mid 2019 uh and I did decently well uh enough that at that point I had graduated college and I was working a full-time job and um around uh, March of 2020, which is right when about COVID hit, I was actually let go from my, my job. And it ended up being like the best thing that possibly could have happened to me because I kind of had flirted with this idea of playing poker full time and streaming full time. I started streaming a little bit on Twitch, um, you know, trying to get out there, trying to improve my, my game a lot. And I was having a good year. Um, and so once I was I was let go from my job in, in early 2020. It was kind of like the push that I needed to really say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go hard full time into poker. I'm gonna spend my time studying. I'm gonna spend my time streaming. Uh, I'm gonna you know make this what I want to do with my life. And um, and it's been a journey since then. It really has, man. Uh, I streamed full time for a month or two, but after a while, I was on the uh, ACR Stormers too um, for a, a brief period of time, uh, but after I stopped streaming so much, um, Jason's not lost. He messaged me and, and you know he said you gotta stream. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so 
I stopped streaming and I, I focused really on playing full time and studying and that sort of thing. And I had, I guess you could call it an issue. I didn't think it was an issue at the time, but what happened was my first month or month and a half of playing full time was great. And I just thought I was the best. And I was like, yes, I've done it. I'm successful, you know, full-time poker player. Um, and so what followed was seven to eight months of not so great. Not so great, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we you can't know, let the it, results fool us, can we? Like, we're never as good as we think, nor are we as bad as we think, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, that's one of the hardest parts about playing this game full-time is determining am I running good, am I playing well, you know, what's going on, am I losing in high equity spots, am I running bad in my higher buy-in tournaments, you know, what's the deal, and I think half the battle is just figuring out, like, what's going on, you know, where are my leaks and what are my, my actual leaks, but, um, yeah, so the, the last half of 2020 was was very tough for me poker-wise, and I was working with my coach, uh, Andrew Brokus was my coach during 2020. I was working with him and I remember at one point I looked at my poker tracker for a graph and there was something like 125,000 or 150,000 hands that I had in the whole year. And my win rate was like 0. 0.00007 big blinds per 100. Basically, <laughs> basically break even. You're positive. You're you're a profitable player. Can you can you make a living on point zero 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 seven? You know, and I know I know win rate and, and red line and all that stuff. It it, it doesn't say everything no. all unadjusted. It it doesn't tell the whole story. Right, but right, right. Over that sample size, it's a little worrisome. Um and I I realized at that point on my own that I was doing really well in the earlier stages of tournaments and not doing so well in the later stages of tournaments. And one thing that was kind of like an aha moment for me, uh, poker-wise, was at the end of 2020 when I started to realize that I'm just getting outplayed at the final four tables, the final three tables, the final two tables. Um, I found myself getting there constantly, but I was just constantly getting outplayed. And I was finding myself in these awkward spots I didn't have to be in. And so I really focused on that part of my tournament game. So what what was going on generally? Were they running over you? Were you uh, knitting it up too much? Were you putting yourself in vulnerable spots too often? What was going on there? It was a combination of, of two things. The first is I was definitely knitting it up too much. Um, it's a very hard human nature type habit to avoid when we're playing for sums of money that are, are large for us. Yeah. But the second and the bigger issue that I fixed was mentally is I was struggling being deep in a tournament, dealing with the pressure. I mean, whether you're playing for $500 or $500,000, if it's a lot of money to you, it's a lot of money to you and it's going to be a lot of pressure on you. And so I was having trouble dealing with the pressure and I wasn't responding well. So I would, you know, I would lose a, a pot and just dust it all off, punch it all away. Or I would, you know, take a bad beat and, and kind of lose my mind. Oh, this always happens to me at the final two tables. Oh, aces lose to kings at the final three tables. How come I can never, you know, this and this and this. 
Uh, and so once I started addressing that, uh, and I did so through uh, a couple of different tactics, including meditation, once I started addressing that part of my game, I, I noticed myself really improving and of course studying uh, more theory because as you get deeper into these these higher tournaments, you're going to be encountering better players and we want to be playing more theory based in that regard. So studying more theory along with helping fix those mental leaks is really what helped me with that. So you struggled with tilt a bit, especially late in events where the pressure was already on. If something bad happened, you had trouble keeping your composure and you tried to address that problem through meditation and other sources. You were working with Andrew, you know, our, our good friend Andrew Brokus at that time as your coach. Um, what kind of advice did he give you about handling that particular problem? Um, when I first had my first session with Andrew, he did give me some, some good advice about that. Um, is, you know, basically, it has to stop. I mean, besides the fact that it has to stop, as he talked about, um, treating the game professionally. You know, uh, what we do uh, as professionals is we are professional poker players, and we need to take it seriously, much like you know, uh, uh, someone who works at a bank takes their job seriously. It's what we do is is important, and we need to treat it with the respect that it deserves. And when you when you tilt like that, when you let yourself get thrown off your game, or for whatever reason, allow yourself to be emotionally connected uh, to the way you play, it it never ends up well. And so we need to learn to disconnect ourselves from the money that we're playing for, disconnect our emotions from the results of the table. And, and so that's been the, the struggle for me, and that's kind of something that he echoed to me as well. Uh, and that's something I've been working on a lot. Um, I remember about Two months ago, I took a bad beat. I was at a table with a friend of mine. I took a bad beat, and he sent me a message and, and said, you know, oh, that sucked or something. And I told him, uh, I said, I'm trying this new thing where I take a deep breath. I told myself that sucked, and I move on. And doing that has absolutely helped me a lot is, is take a deep breath, tell yourself that sucked, and we move on. Yeah, you know, that's basically what I do. I never try to not feel something, you know. I, I think human nature is that you have emotions, you know. Like, if something hurts, it hurts. And I'll admit to myself that it hurts. But then I also remind myself that, as you say, we professionals need to be able to, like, take that pain and then move forward. And, I mean, everybody tilts. I don't care who you are. There is a moment in your life when you were not emotionally prepared for the horrible news the cards were about to deliver, and it it messed up your game. So I'm not going to pretend that I can stay on my A game immediately after some horrible stroke of luck uh, strikes. But I will say that I think that just feeling it and admitting that I feel it, I'm like, wow, that really sucks. I'm very disappointed right now that I just went from three times an average stack to half an average stack, but I'm still in the tournament, and now my job is to focus on what comes next, not on what already happened. And just kind of like centering myself with thoughts like that. I never try to pretend that I'm a robot and that I don't have feelings, but I do understand the importance of experiencing that emotion and then trying to 
put it behind me as soon as, as soon as I can because now we're dealing another hand and I can't be stuck on that last one or those mistakes are just going to, to compound. Or maybe the first one wasn't even a mistake, but what happens afterwards could definitely be a serious mistake if I'm not careful. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and one thing I've started thinking about, I heard, I overheard uh, from a study session from several months ago. Uh, at one point, there was a hand and the hero had 15 big blinds and the, the guy who was giving a study session said, oh, 15 big blinds is my favorite stack to play. And I started thinking about that. And one thing I've done with that is I've really tried to internalize that when we play, we're playing a stack. Right, so we have 100 big lines. We're playing our 100 big line stack according to our 100 big line stack strategy, and then we lose three quarters of it. You know, maybe it was our fault, maybe it wasn't our fault. It's not important. What is important now is that we now have 25 big lines, and we're now playing a 25 big line stack according to our 25 big line stack strategy. And so focusing on the fact that this game, much like chess is a game where we're going to have a strategy that we want to execute and that strategy is going to vary based on our stack size focusing on that is something that also really helped me because you know i'll sit there at 100 big lines and, and focus on that strategy and then i lose that three quarters of my stack but instead of saying oh my god i just went from 100 to 25 big lines i try and take that breath and i say okay now i'm playing 25 big lines so that's something that can help as well yeah uh, you know if anybody ever sends you a hand like if one of your poker buddies is like hey man i want to i want to talk to you about this hand that i played and just you know do kind of a line check with you and make sure that i didn't do anything stupid here what do you think about this all right so here's the situation this is the level i have 30 bigs the hero i mean a villain under the gun you know and then they start talking they don't say i have 30 bigs i used to have 120 bigs <laughs> But then I lost this huge coin flip and I tried to hit this flush and they don't tell you like it doesn't matter. The fact is you have 30 bigs. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to use that too. Just and just the idea that a short stack like 15 bigs is your favorite to play might make it easier if you get, you know, cut down really short at some point in a tournament where you did have a large stack. I mean, my favorite stack to play is like 200 plus big blinds. I'll be honest. <laughs> But I understand you know, it's it's harder for those of us who have studied theoretical charts and things to make a big mistake with 10 or 15 bigs, right? Yeah. It's much easier for us to make a big mistake with 200 or 300 bigs. So in that sense, it's my favorite too. Like I do feel less pressure when, I, when I'm short stacked in a tournament because I feel like the hands kind of play themselves. They, they do, yeah. And, and let's be clear, I don't want to have 15 big blinds. <laughs> yeah, I know. At any I know. point, just for the record. But, and it's not my favorite stack size. Either. I definitely prefer 100. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, playing playing a short stack is, in a sense, easy. I yeah. mean, you, you shove what you're supposed to shove, and, and hopefully you get there. Yeah, and if you have you amateurs know? at your table, they make enormous mistakes against our 15 bigs. You know, I've seen some unbelievable folds. Like just the other day at Venetian, and we're going to do strategy in a minute, so this isn't really a strategy, but uh, just a little bit of a story. Um, a player raised from late position, and I had, I think, 13, might have been 12, 12 or 13 bigs, and I shoved uh, from the small blind after he opened from, I believe, the cutoff. And he folds and shows an ace. 
And I'm like, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that his fold is correct. It, it, uh, it assuredly is, is, almost assuredly is not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice segue. I, I was actually just in Vegas myself. Um, I went out for the first two weeks of the online series, so we must have just missed each, missed each other. But uh, went out, got an Airbnb with a bunch of friends, uh, similar to um, Sleevy, who you just had on. A couple yeah, weeks Sleevy. I did actually. I did get to, to talk to him a little bit. I played in that in 500k as well. What um, a great guy! But, I really like him yeah. a lot. He, we're gonna have him back on. We got a lot of good feedback about that episode. Simon Levy, if you haven't heard it, um, yeah, people thought he was. Uh, he seemed to have his act together for being so young, and I agree. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, it was a really a, a pleasure talking to him over at the win. Um, but that that Vegas trip that I just took, I did see some some ridiculous folds. One of which happened in in the big event that I that I ended up final tabling. I made my first big final table of my career, at least live, um, this summer in Vegas. I final tabled the Venetian 400k. Uh, it ended up turning into a price pool of 1.2 million, and um, at that tournament, um, when there were probably four or five tables left, uh, what happened at one point is a relatively tight player opened under the gun. He had maybe 23 big lines, um, not a very big stack. He got three bet to about seven big lines from mid position. It folded back to the under the gun player who jammed. And then mid position tanked and folded face up, ace king offsuit. Wow. Um, and <laughs> that just, you know, I, I, I just. You're yeah. speechless. I mean, you, you, you never see that online, basically. You won't see that yeah. on too many online sites that I'm familiar with. So, wow, and that's incredible. Forget the fact that he's getting like five or four to one on a call. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's basically an incorrect fold unless you're absolutely certain you're up against pocket aces. Yeah, if he if he flips over his hand and it's pocket aces, you can fold. Otherwise, you, can fold. you should probably yeah. call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how can you ever be that sure unless you've actually seen the cards? You have an ace. I mean, oh, my goodness. Wow, that's, that is ridiculous. All right, so um, seems like the stage is set. And uh, I, I don't know what, what kind of hands you brought, but I know that uh, all of us were collectively celebrating the fact that Carlos, and not you, won the 888 <laughs> tournament. <laughs> oh, yeah, so. you know, being at that final table was a blessing and a curse, I guess you have to say, because um, I kind of wanted Carlos to win also. <laughs> Um, everybody's favorite he is everyone's favorite tell me one person who doesn't love Carlos I mean come on (laughs) that's amazing for for real what's interesting about that tournament is I was actually playing live that day too so I played the the Venetian 100k it was a one day tournament that day and I was playing this event on my phone Um, and so I you know this is the first time I, I traveled to Vegas for the World Series of Poker um, assuming, you know, knocking here on wood, that all goes off well into the fall without a hitch. I'll be there this fall as well. Um, quick brag, won a seat into the main event while I was in Vegas, so I'll be back in November. Hey, that's great. But, awesome. Yeah, yeah it is great. Um, but, um, excuse me, sorry, I was playing live with that tournament, and I never expected, of course, to make the final table of an $800 
World Series bracelet event with 700 entries. I mean, I, I like, I think I'm a good poker player, but not, you know, competing against the best in the world. I never expected to make the final table. So as we got deeper and deeper and deeper into this World Series event, I got deeper and deeper into the Venetian event, too, that I was playing live <laughs> um, and ended up. Uh, so when we hit the final two tables of the World Series event, we were at the final three tables of the Venetian event. Wow. So I'm sitting. Yeah. So I was sitting here on my phone trying to effectively navigate you know the final 16 players in this bracelet event while trying to pay attention to uh to the live event going on in front of me now how hard was that i mean how screwed up did that get you you know a a lot of people do it and and early in tournaments it's fine even midway through tournaments it's fine but let me tell you as much as everyone will say oh it's such a good problem to have i can just feel myself bleeding money as i can't give either of these tournaments my full attention um and you know i've i don't have a bracelet so i'm sitting here playing for my first career bracelet meanwhile the 100k ballooned to like 230k so that has like a 50k first place prize so it it really was a tough spot for me because i knew i wasn't playing optimally in, in either one and what i ended up doing was i i ended up not choosing one which i should have um, is we talked about this. I talked about this with some of my, my friends, but I, I think at some point I should have just left the Venetian table. Um, and that point probably should have been when we reached the final table of the bracelet event. I should have left my Venetian table and focused solely on the bracelet event because I did end up making a pretty bad shove uh, that knocked me out in eighth. Uh, and part of it was because at the time of the jam, we were changing tables at the Venetian tournament, oh, so we were was, uh, yeah. coming, going from three to two. So I was trying to gather up my chips and my backpack, and meanwhile I have um, you know a case and the small blind facing a button open, and I'm just like, okay, you know. Um, you want to just shove, and then you can concentrate on like the physical thing you have to do live. So you exactly. just shove and then just, forget it. Yeah. It in there. Yeah, and, and go to the new table, and, and he's gonna, you know, it was over a button open, so he's gonna fold, you know, 85% of the time. Sure, yeah. Or so, um, he ended up having it. Uh, it for those that didn't see the streamer, the hand, it was ace deuce off that I shoved, which is not a good shove. Um, he called me, he snap called me with ace queen and uh, flopped a queen, so I was basically drawing dead. So if I but, hear you correctly, Joey, what I think you're trying to tell us is that had you not been so unbelievably good at live poker you would have won the bracelet instead of carlos yeah that that's exactly what i'm saying um, <laughs> i'm not trying to put words in your mouth but i'm just trying to no you're <laughs> you're not putting words in my mouth that, that is exactly what i'm saying i'm so unbelievably talented at live poker that i just i had to let carlos win the online one you know yeah, you, know, you so. gotta spread you know share the wealth as you're having the best summer you've ever had you know throw carlos a bone too that's really generous of you so on behalf of yeah, Carlos, thank you for that. Well, um, on behalf of World Series of Poker bracelet winner, Carlos. Wilson. That's right. That's what I'm supposed to say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's hear one of the hands from your from your uh, final table, if you have one. Sure. It's not from the final table. I believe it's from the final two tables. Okay. Though. That's cool. Um, and so this is from that, that bracelet event, the 888. Um, at this point point were six-handed at our table i believe so we're either you know 13 12 or 11 left right. i'd have to imagine we're 
we're at 12-ish. I am uh, currently chip leading at my table with 25 big blinds, so I have 1.1 million. God, these things get and so the short, lines. don't they? If the chip leader at yep. a table has 25 big blinds and, and the prize is a bracelet and like $150,000 or something. <laughs> yeah, and 8th and, and place is like, you know, $9,000. 20 right? bucks, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. 20 bucks, yeah. So um, I'm chip leading at the table with 1.1 million. The blinds are 20 and 40K. Okay. So we have a little shy of 30, actually. So like 26, 27 big blinds. Yeah, okay. Um, the rest of the stacks are between uh, 10 and 20 uh, big blinds. Okay. Carlos is two to our right. Everyone else is a relatively unknown. As I mentioned, I did not give this tournament the attention it deserved. Right. Um, unfortunately. So you couldn't. Yeah, you're busy. You couldn't go and like check everybody on Poker News, Hand and Mob, and Google and try to figure out who everybody is. Because like, you you got other things that you're doing like. Trying to win a large sum of money in person as well. Now I've experimented with this, yeah. playing live while also playing on my device, and I get very distracted. Like I end up timing down on my device or just making a mistake in the live hand. Like I don't think it's for me. And I actually played against um, Brandon Adams in a live bracelet event while he was in the process of winning his bracelet online last uh, I mean two summers ago and I mean I, I basically stole all the chips from Brandon Adams because our tournament was in like early middle stages and he was playing the final table so he was sitting there but he was mostly focusing on his phone and I was just I was taking all the chips from him like if he was in the blind I didn't care what I had I just raised it yeah that makes a lot of sense um and it's the issue if you're going to do this on your phone, you have to understand this is what you're getting yourself into. And as, you know, a Vegas first-timer, a first-time World Series <laughs> poker player, um, wasn't 100% ready to, to be at, you know, the final two tables of a live 100K while final tabling a World Series bracelet event on my phone. Yeah, but I mean, in but, your wildest dreams, you didn't think that was going to happen. So I don't blame you for doing both. But yeah, that is a... Uh, as some people would say, I, I know what you mean when you when they say that's a great problem to have. Like they don't want to hear you complain, you know. Oh, poor baby, mm -hmm. you went really deep in two tournaments on the same day, you know. But yeah, I, I also understand your side of it is that you would like to have been able to, I guess, compartmentalize or just focus more, or as you said, perhaps you could have chosen one or the other. But I don't. Yeah, know. I ended up like doing mediocre in both. according to where I, I was at in both. Yeah. You know? So it, it, it just it, that's not what we want. You that's know? not what we want. Um, we and, and especially especially at the Venetian, they're historically I will say uh, tough on people using their electronic devices at the table. They are as well as as um they're very uneven about it. So some dealers will not bat an eyelash, whereas other dealers can kind of make it their mission to make sure you don't play on your phone. Sure. So it was tough to kind of try and be looking up these people, you know, and and figuring out who they were on, on Hend and Mob or, or Poker News or that sort of thing. I wasn't even watching the stream or even trying to, so. Um, but, but yeah, anyways, go back to the hand. Uh, yeah. We're chip leading at the table. We have 1.1 million. Uh, we're in the big blind, six-handed, and we have nine, ten of diamonds. Okay. Um, 
As I mentioned, the table is very short and action folds to the small blind who is unknown who completes. Um, and we're here with nine, ten of diamonds in the big blind. And uh, uh, he has how many uh, chips? And he has 830,000. So he has about 20. 20 23 big blinds. Yeah. Okay. All right. So he's just got a little less than what we've got. All right. Now, I mean, you could certainly raise if you want. Like, you could probably raise and take it a lot. I mean, this guy can't really mess around with his stack, right? So if you if you make it 4x, he's probably going to fold, like, a huge amount of the time. But I think it may actually be more profitable to play such a playable hand in position and just check it and see a flop. You know, if he checks twice and we miss... If we miss the flop and then our opponent checks twice, we can usually bet and take it on the turn no matter what cards are out there, right? So, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, this... If you told me you raised, I wouldn't be mad at it, but I would just check. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking along the same lines as you are, especially at this point. Chip leader of the table, 13, 12 left in this event. There's, you know, 9-10 series is a, a hand that flops very well, but there's no reason to you know, try and play this this huge pot right now, pre-flop with the small blind. Um, the hands that he's going to fold if we make it like 3 or 4x are hands like that we're probably just going to fold anyway and aren't, are hands we don't necessarily want to fold. Um, you know, hands like 4-7 of diamonds is a hand I want him to have here. Uh, as well as when you think about how we're going to construct our our raising range here from the big blind, blind versus blind. I think this shallow, we want to make a lot of our raises hands that don't play very well post flop. Um, you know, hands like king six offsuit or or you know queen five off or something like that. And the hands like nine ten suited or or you know jack eight suited. Those sorts of hands are hands we're going to want to check behind and see flops with and play in position. Yeah, so now, against an unknown opponent, you don't you don't want to necessarily make assumptions about whether he's going to be exploitable, like is he going to limp with his bad hands and raise with his good hands? So when he just calls here, does that mean he has a bad hand? Or is he the kind of fellow who might be capable of completing from the small blind with a monster, hoping that you raise with any two cards so that he can end up playing a big pot with you? You know, there's a lot of cat and mouse that goes on, and I just think the hand flops too well and is too playable to raise with so yeah i agree with you i think checking is best yeah and and if we do raise and he ends up jamming over the top like even if he has aces specifically or kings like nine ten series is not doing that poorly against it and so we're actually folding away a decent amount of equity and if he's doing this with hands you know like ace five suited or, or king queen suited we're folding away way too much equity so so raising and having to fold to a jam is, is really bad in my opinion so it's another argument for just checking behind yeah and you will be folding so raising allows you to be more exploitable and with an unknown opponent you just don't want to put yourself in that position where he has a play that is going to make i mean he'd be he'd be printing money limping yeah, exactly. and then shoving with any two cards because you're always going to fold the 10-9 so you need to make sure that much of your raising range is going to be value and then like you say maybe like some of your king six some of your queen five but not your 10-9 suited we should see a flop with this hand 
Yeah, and this is not really a spot where we can apply that much ICM pressure either because, like I said, the other stacks at the table are all kind of so smushed together and everyone's so short that he's going to be willing to take as many chances as he would normally anyway. Yeah. Um, I should say he or she. but um, Yeah, we should. I always say he, and it's very sexist of me, especially online. There are more women playing online than there are live. Yep. That's, that's proven that's because true. women are more comfortable in the computers where they don't have to smell us and hear our ridiculous comments. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's <laughs> they, very they true. play online. Yeah. It's a lot more comfortable. So, yeah, your opponent, uh, gender notwithstanding, uh, would have a great exploit of you if, you, if you're going to raise too much just because your opponent limps in. So, for all the reasons we yep. said, I think checking is best, and I'm glad that's what you did. I did check behind, um, and we go to a flop uh, with 110,000 in the middle. The flop is king of spades, nine of spades, four of hearts. So we flop middle pair uh, with a backdoor straight draw, but not much else. Um, okay, and we have the 10-9 of diamonds, so it's middle we have pair. We 10-9 of diamonds. Middle pair with the 10 kicker, and then, yeah, I mean, you could catch two runners to make a straight, potentially. All right, Correct. so uh, I'm assuming that Villain is about to check here. Villain does not check. Oh. Villain uh, bets essentially a minimum bet 43,350, okay. and the blinds are 20 and 40, so it's it's a min bet. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's there's going to be no problem. I think we are always calling here 100%. I think raising is is. I mean, I guess there's an argument for raising, but I, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, and we're never folding middle pair blind versus blind. Yeah, again, if we raise uh, similar to preflop, we just we open ourselves up to so much uh, just headache. Like, what happens if your raise gets raised? Then you're going to be <laughs> folding what's probably the best hand a lot. Mm -hmm. Especially because some of the hands that are going to jam or three-bet jam on the flop over our raise are going to be hands like big draws. Yeah, there's so a lot of draws, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so just call. We did just call uh, the bet, and we go to the turn with 196,000 in the middle, so approximately 200K. Uh, and the turn is the 10 of clubs. So now the board is king of spades, nine of spades, four of hearts, Ten of clubs and hero is in the big blind with nine ten of diamonds, so we turn two pair. Yeah, and no. villain checks. Yeah, now blind versus blind, even top pair is basically a monster. So two pairs is a really big hand, unless this board somehow gets incredibly ugly, like the jack of clubs, no jack of spades, whatever the suit is that's out there, right? Then I'm going to be pretty comfortable yeah. with my with my two pair all the way um, that said how much value can we get uh, if a lot of his leading range is draws um, then he might be checking planning to call here with with a draw unless we bet too much um, yeah I think what you'll find nowadays at least online from from my experience is in the blind versus blind limped pot scenarios you have the small blind leading for about one big blind a decent amount. A lot of people are doing it. I'm doing it myself as well. There's a lot of benefits for it. They're doing it on you know pretty much any flop that they want. 
Um, most people respond very badly to a, a small bet on the flop. And so it can be kind of tough to range that because when you see that min bet come from the small blind, it could be everything from, you know, king queen suited to, you know, five eight offsuit. I mean, it could be everything from top pair to eight high. So there's definitely some hands he's going to be doing this with, such as draws, but I could also see him doing this with, with certain made hands as well. Um, you know, the tendency of people to play a little bit nittier deeper in tournaments is often overlooked. And I think at this point, uh, he may even have hands as strong as, you know, King Queen or King Jack that he limped in, maybe even planning to jam if we raised, uh, ended up hitting top pair and now wants to kind of do his best to keep the pot as small as possible. He could have pocket aces for that matter. Right. He, exactly. Uh, yeah, he could. If he um, thinks that you're the type, or that, or just hopes that you're the type that likes to raise just because somebody limps in from the small blind, um, he could really, he could be uncapped basically. Yeah, and you're seeing that more and more nowadays. Is that limp shove from the small blind? Um, I think that's really starting to gain some esteem, and, and a lot of the better players are starting to understand which hands they want to do it with too. So um, something to watch out for. for I'm sure. doing it quite a bit myself. Because, yeah. you know, I, I mean, anyone who has a HUD on me can see that my aggression, aggression factors are on the high end, uh, you know, to say the least. So when I don't come in for a raise, they think I must really have nothing. Yeah, and it's it's really nice to do with a hand like a king-queen suited or like a, a king-jack suited because even if the big blind checks behind, your hand still plays fine, like post-flop. And if the big blind decides to raise, you're doing fine against that range. And even with a hand like king-queen suited or king-jack suited, you do block some of their calls like ace-king or, or ace-queen or ace-jack. Um, so it's a really nice hand to limp shove those sorts of hands are at 20 big lines, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, we're, we're on the turn here. Villain has checked to us. There's about 200K in the middle. We well, turn two pair. With that in mind, then why don't we just be optimistic here? You know, maybe he did limp in with pocket aces. Maybe he does have a really strong top pair hand like a king queen or whatever. Um, you know, with that in mind, especially king queen would be great because he also has a gut shot to go with his top pair, right? So yeah. I would bet big here. Let's go heavy. Let's bet like 150. You said the pot's like 200. Yeah, um, and this is my biggest mistake of the hand um, is I check behind. Oh. Um, yeah, it's it's not a good check, and I'm not, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, yeah, but you game, were playing that you were also running deep in a live event, so let's not... <laughs> Yeah, but I can't just do whatever I want and then say, oh, well, you know, Venetian. I'm going to keep making that excuse uh, for you if you want. You know, I got I got you. Don't worry. No, I mean, of course, you know, in the heat of battle, it's reason, different. It's, it's, it's tough. You know, it, it, I think it definitely is a mistake. But my reasoning at the time is that, you know, I, I have a lot of, of 9x and 4x in my range here. He min bet the flop and I called. Um, this is a card that I am often going to be checking and I need to have hands that can call river bets when I do. And I just don't think like if I had a hand like, 
you know, four or five here is not a hand where I can expect any river to come out and be reasonably comfortable calling any bet at all, you know, a hand like that. So, um, excuse me. So I checked back and I think I was doing so to try and protect my check back range, but this is not a hand I think I want to do that with because it's just a little bit too vulnerable and there are plenty of pair plus gut shots or pair plus flush draws or open-ended straight draws that can go as action. Yeah, and you just gave all of them a free card. So, now I'm not going to beat you up. You already said that you don't like your play here, but your rationale is worth considering because we do want to have bluff catchers after we call the flop and check back on the turn. We need to have some bluff catchers in our range. For me, I would let those be other nines. You know, I would probably always, if I check the turn with a nine, I'm always calling pretty much every river bet, unless it's like, I don't know, maybe maybe I would fold to a pot size river bet or something if I thought my opponent mm-hmm. couldn't make that with, with worse than just a pair of nines. Something like that. But, I mean, when you check back on the turn, you do invite your opponent to bet the river, and you want to be able to have some calls in there. But I just think 10-9 is too strong to turn into just a bluff catcher here. So that's why I really want to bet it and try to get some value, like especially if he does have spades or a pair and a flush draw. Uh, obviously, a king can't go anywhere. I don't care. Even if you overbet the turn, a king can't really fold. Not heads up, mm-hmm. blind versus blind. No way. Um, mm-hmm. Because you can have a lot of draws too. So a king just has to hang on. So we're in a spot to get a lot of value, and I think that just protecting your check back range is not a good enough reason not to go for that value here. So I think we agree now, yeah. but you know, in, in game you, you played it this way. So um, let's see what happens on the river. No, I definitely, you're, you're, you're on point a hundred percent. And this was a, a huge mistake in this hand that may have ended up costing me a good part of this tournament. It's one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk about this hand is because, you know, kind of just to show that like, we all make mistakes, right? It happens, even in events, and we just, you know, take a deep breath and move on. Um, anyway, I check behind, and we go to the river, uh, kind of get billed out on the river, which is the nine of clubs. Oh, you want to so think the final that... board? <laughs> the final board is king of spades, nine of spades, four of hearts, ten of clubs, nine of clubs, and hero has nine ten of diamonds. So we have went runner runner for a full house, and villain checks a third, uh, a second time. Yeah. I mean, uh, and this becomes a mandatory bet, obviously. Yeah, of course, we're um, not going to knit it up and check back a full house. But, you know, <laughs> there's two ways to approach this, and they both make sense. Um, in a, on a theoretical level, we should overbet this river because uh, we expect to get called by the hands that our opponents slow played, like King, Queen ace-king, pocket aces, those hands, just they have to call or else our opponent has no bluff catchers in his range. They have to call at least some of the time. So overbetting is what I think, I, I didn't, obviously I didn't even see this hand before we talked, but I imagine a solver would love to overbet this at least some of the time. Um, a GTO bot would probably say like a big, big value bet here is the way to go. Um, But in tournaments, it's also extremely important to accumulate chips wherever you can, even if it means sacrificing a little uh, 
EV. Like in other words, if he's going to call the overbet 10% of the time, but he'll call a one third of the pot bet 75% of the time, you, you have to make the smaller bet. So we don't actually know in practice where that line of demarcation is, what exact amount we should bet, how often. Um, but the only thing I wouldn't like is a medium-sized bet. I think we either, we either want to try to squeeze a little more juice out of the orange and get looked up by some kind of questionable hand, like bottom pair or something, or we want to be more optimistic and hope that he's slow playing a big hand and then we can overbet big, like, I don't know, 280 or something. Because there's still only 200 in this pot. Like, we're not going to go all in. Yeah, and this this really illustrates, you know, despite hitting gin on the river, even if the river didn't give me a full house, there's a decent chance it would have been good enough for me to value bet. And this illustrates why we want to bet the turn. Um, you know, now that the pot is only 200K, the pot could be, you know, 400K right now or more. Um, but it, it, it's not. Uh, one thing I tried to do in this spot was really think about what kind of range Dylan has. I mean, he limped in pre-flop, he minned at the flop, and then checked turn and checked river. I I could see it being done, you know, with a king a decent amount of the time, but this range is, is very medium strength-ish. Um, in my opinion, it's going to be hands that decided not to continue bluffing on the turn for whatever reason if they were bluffing uh, and decided to play pot control and bluff catch on the turn if they were uh, value based so if he had the king queen or he had the king jack he, he decided to check that on the turn check that on the river and, and play bluff bluff catching with it meanwhile if he had a bluff he elected not to bluff the turn hands that aren't going to bluff the turn and as a reminder, the turn was a 10, so the flop was king, nine, four, and the turn was a 10. So that makes me think hands like 10 jack or 10 queen, right? Hands that were bluffing flop that turned a little bit of equity. Um, now, we do block those hands pretty hard with our 10 itself. But at that point, my rationale was that villain's range is relatively weak. Um, and... I wanted to make my bet look as bluffy as possible. In retrospect, I love the overbet. I think it's much better, especially when we see results, although we can't be results-oriented. Um, I bet about, what's this going to be, 65% pot. Um, I bet 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 uh, into the uh, 196,000 chip pot. Yeah, that's the bet uh, I didn't want to make. Is like somewhere in between an overbet and an underbet. Yeah, and that's the yeah, that's the yeah. sizing I wouldn't want to use here because you can't really get called by a very weak but showdownable hand like I don't know bottom pair or some little weak pair. Uh, and you will get called by stronger hands that would also have called the bigger bet. So yeah, that's the sizing yeah. I didn't want to use. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of like the the worst of all the sizing things <laughs> to say. Um, but um, but yeah, so I bet I bet one, two, three, four, five, six into the pot and uh, villain snap called with ace king offsuit. Yeah, that's what we were hoping he had. So yeah, we missed out <laughs> yeah. on a ton of value here for sure. 
Uh, but did so, we mention uh, that you were also really deep in a live event at the Venetian at the same time? <laughs> we, I think we mentioned that my live poker skills were so incredibly good that <laughs> I, just, I, I had to let Carlos win this one. So I ended up making all these mistakes for him, right? So. <laughs> well, you know, everyone loves Carlos. And, you know, it's funny to me. Like, I'll listen to Thinking Poker Podcast and they'll say, like, when when they have Carlos on... Andrew will come on. Now, I've been a guest on that show five times. And he'll say, oh, it's a pleasure to welcome back our favorite guest, everybody's favorite guest. And it's not even close. None of the other guests are anywhere near as good as this one. And the way they introduce Carlos is just like, honestly, it hurts a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's he's earned it. He's earned it. He's the guy. Um, he's the guy. Every single person in poker loves him. So on behalf of the entire poker community, Thank you for not getting full value for your full house uh, with 10-9, allowing Carlos to, to cross the finish line. Yeah, I did I did go up to uh, 1.3 million after this hand and was chip leading. Um, and then, uh, you know, I said, okay, Carlos, go ahead. There you go. I proved that I could take the <laughs> chip lead with 12 players left in a bracelet event. What else do I need to prove? You're the one who cares about the jewelry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just so cool seeing him win. I mean, I've I've never felt so happy to have not won a tournament. I mean, I wanted you know obviously I wanted to get heads up with him, but yeah. like it it just it was it was so cool. And, and what we, place we, did we you end up it. getting, Joey? I ended up finishing in eighth place, eighth so place. it was an eight max. So I, I busted the final table first. Um, right. It was so short. I mean, most of us had in between 10 and 20 big blinds, so... Yeah, and like we said earlier, there's there's no huge mistake that anyone who's studied is going to make uh, with those stack sizes. I mean, even if you're trying to ICMIs and figure out whether it's time to ladder or try, time to push the uh, push the issue or whatever, um, you know, just with that stack, it's it's very hard to, to really donk it off. I mean, I've seen yeah, people do and, it, but yeah, I doubt that you did that. It just no, probably it, got into it, a coin flip that didn't go your way or something. It, these things happen, you know. This is what we signed up for. I have to tell myself this constantly. This is what I signed up for, you know. Um, it's the truth. And it, it was unfortunate. I busted that World Series event and I busted the Venetian event at, at nearly identical times. So I'd say within about two minutes of each other. Wow. Um, so congratulations. Yeah. 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 Well, so. that's cool, though. I mean, especially for your first uh, trip to Vegas during the World Series of Poker. And this year, you actually get to do two of those because there was one online and now there's going to be a whole other live one, God willing, in October that I'm looking forward to playing. Uh, do you have a certain amount, uh, percentage of your bankroll set aside for that? Are you going to come out here with a with a game plan are you looking for backers like what's your deal with the uh with the series this year so i'm actually part of a stable um i joined earlier this year so um i don't take any outside backing myself um and uh basically i i you know play according to the terms of our our agreement so my plan is to to go experience whatever i can I have a couple things I have to plan for in October um, that are going to be taking up some of my time, so I'm not 100% sure exactly when I'll be in Vegas this fall. Uh, I mentioned I did 
win a seat to the main, so obviously I'll be there in early November. Um, but I'd really like to make it to some of the other events as well, including a couple of the PLO8 events, because I'm a very... Um, I really like playing PLO8, and you can't find it live anywhere, you know? So. No, you can never find that game live. Now, before I let you go, Joey, I have to ask you, uh, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners would be really interested in a little bit more. Obviously, I don't want to ask you to share anything you're not comfortable sharing, but as far as what it's like to be in a stable, um, what can you tell our listeners about um, that experience, how it works, how you end up in a stable, what the deal is, um, anything you're comfortable sharing about that arrangement that you have? Because I'm sure that many of our listeners are like, oh, I'd like to have a, a backer put me in his stable too. Sure. Well, um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, you know, as far as getting involved in a stable goes, it's really just about networking. It's no different than coming out of school with a degree and trying to get a job. Um, it's about talking to people. It's about immersing yourself in the poker world. Um, I've been around, you know, poker Twitter, poker Twitch, uh, poker Discord for quite a while. You know, tried to make those connections, and it ended up being some of those connections that led me into the stable. So it really was just kind of me going out on my own and and making these friends, making these connections, um, and and that's what led me into the stable. Um, as far as being involved in it, it's you know I, I don't want to talk it up too much because people already really really want to get involved in them, but it's an amazing an amazing experience um, having all of these people around me available to me 24 seven. I can post hands in our discord. I can talk to, you know, my coaches or, or my friends or, or other people in the stable. I can say, Hey, what do you think of this play or that play? Um, it's no coincidence that I joined the stable and I'm having my, my career year right now. Um, I have coaching sessions, you know, every week or every other week. Um, I'm really big personally on studying, a lot of poker players say they study, but they don't really study. Uh, and I'm someone who is a big believer that you don't put in the time in the lab and you're not going to win on the felt. So I try and keep a, a strict every three hours of play. I spend one hour studying rule. Um, I don't always get there, but I, I try really hard to do that. That's a good rule. That is a really good rule. If we all did that. Man, how how much better would our results be if everybody did that? Wow, that's a yeah, great rule. That's 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 what I do, and I also don't play every day. I, I play three to four days a week. So the days that I don't play um, are the days I study, and and there are also days I do something else. We can get so involved in poker. Like I live in Southern California. It's July. It's beautiful, you know. So I'll spend my off days going to play frisbee golf, or going to the park, or going taking a walk with my wife, or something like that. But not playing every day and making sure I study uh, proportionally to how much I play are definitely two things that have helped this year for me too. Well, that's great. Um, no, thanks for sharing your, um, you know, your insights on that. Is there anything else you would you would be willing to tell us about um, how it works exactly? Like, for example, I can picture some of our listeners hearing this. Like, well, does your backer give you an unlimited amount of money? Does your back do you pay and then the backer pays you back? Does he keep half the winnings? Like as much detail as you're willing to give because I think there are a lot of different kinds of deals out there and I think that people might be curious if it's not too personal. 
No, not, not at all. Um, you know, much like literally everything else in poker, it depends. <laughs> um, every every stable deal is different. For me, uh, the way it works is I, at the beginning, I was given a, a very basic plan where I was told I was allowed to play up to a certain buy-in level uh, on this site or that site. Um, the stable operates across all of the um, U.S. sites, both uh, quote-unquote the legalized and the quote-unquote unregulated sites as well. So uh, everyone in the stable plays on on five, six, seven different websites. So at the beginning, they said, okay, on this website, you can play up to this level tournament. And on this website, you can play up to that level tournament because certain websites are notoriously softer than others. Um, and as I started to have success at the beginning, they kind of started pushing those boundaries uh, and saying, okay, now you can play uh, up to $55 tournaments, and then now you can play up to 109s, you know, now you can play up to the 215s, et cetera. So as you start improving and, and showing to the people in this table that you're you're really dedicated to, to learning and improving, if you're, if you're having the success, they start bumping you up. And I think... I've talked with other friends of mine who are in different stables and it's becoming increasingly clear that we have it pretty good in terms of the freedom we have. So they really trust us and they trust us to make good decisions with our, our money. So they don't micromanage, they don't say, why did you fire five bullets into the 109 warm-up? You know, they don't say, um, what do you, you know, why did you go play this this $800 live tournament? Um, if you think you're a favorite in the field, um, you can, you know, tell them, hey, I think I'm a favorite in this field, and they've never said no to me. So um, they really trust us. They give us a lot of freedom. And, of course, profits are split. So as someone who doesn't, you know, put up the funds to play with, I obviously don't get to keep all the profits. So that's kind of how the, the general agreement works. In a, a other stables, there's a lot more structure. And the one that I'm in specifically, like I said, they do give us a lot of freedom, which has just been absolutely amazing. But, um, but yeah. That's great. It sounds like a great deal. And thanks for the uh, the download. I think that a lot of people would be very, very curious about, about that and maybe even have like an aspiration to one day join a stable themselves. So, you know, kind of hearing yeah. your thoughts on it. I imagine that one stable is probably very much unlike another. Like one thing I don't think I would like is if I sort of had a boss and I had to explain what I did and why I did it and and stuff like that. I mean, at the end of the month, I'm showing a profit, so that should be good enough. I don't want to have to justify why I put in another uh, another bullet or whatever, but it sounds like you don't have somebody micromanaging you or, or second-guessing you or or you know, put, putting ice in your wounds. It already sucks to bust out of a poker tournament. I don't want to have to answer a bunch of questions either. <laughs> but yeah, yeah most, I guess you wouldn't be in the stable poker. if they didn't think that you could. You wouldn't be in the stable if they didn't think that you could handle uh, the the ups and downs of, of being a pro. Right, right. And, and there was an extensive uh, interview process before I joined. So it wasn't it wasn't just like, oh, hey, sure, come on in. You know, there was a couple weeks of back and forth. Um, you said all I have to do is know. join Twitter. <laughs> um, but yeah, also, if anyone if anyone is curious about it, they can feel free to message me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Um, I'd be happy to, to discuss it with you guys if you have any more questions about what it's like or, or that sort of thing. That is so generous. You guys take him up on that, okay? Go on Twitter at uh, Joe underscore Beagles, B-E-A-G-L, 
E-S, and uh, ask him any questions that you might have about that. That is not something we have talked about very much on the podcast, so um, just as much as hearing your story and how you basically gave a bracelet to our friend Carlos, uh, hearing about <laughs> your stable is uh, also, I, I think, you know, very valuable to to our listenership. So thank you so much for being open about that and about everything and for being such a great first-time guest. Of course, Clayton. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so thanks for coming on. We'd be glad to have you again in the future. So for Joe, Joey, Joe Beagles, and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Love no